is titled, A Reason to Rejoice. A Reason to Rejoice will be in Luke 10, verses 17 through 20. And we are a Bible reading, Bible preaching church, so go with me to Luke chapter 10, would you? Luke 10, verses 17 through 20. And I will start at verse 17. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. There once was a man who encountered Jesus and gave up all that he had to follow him. He gave up worldly pleasures and a warm bed and was hated everywhere he went because of his decision to follow Jesus. While he walked with Christ, he saw miracles, signs, wonders, some that most of us wouldn't believe if we read it in a book somewhere. He was a responsible and wise man. He even knew how to steward money well. So well, in fact, that others trusted him with their finances. He preached powerfully and taught with authority. He cast out demons and made many converts. He saw the power of God move through his ministry for some years and became very close to Jesus. So close that no one saw it coming when he betrayed our Savior. He would deliver Jesus over to his enemies, which paved the way for the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth. His name was Judas Iscariot. Watching from the outside, you would have thought that he was a mighty man of God. He was there for the miracles, like the feeding of the, of the crowds, the healings, the resurrection of Lazarus. He was there when Christ cast out demons, and he even cast demons out himself. He saw large numbers of people chase after Jesus, even preach the gospel to many others, enjoying the benefits of successful ministry. He paid the cost of following Jesus in this life, but later paid the ultimate cost of leading Jesus to his death. While the ministry was happening, Judas had many reasons to rejoice. But when the ministry was over, he was still unregenerate. The sad thing is, if we do not, if we did not know the tragic ending to his story, Many would rejoice. They would put their confidence, their trust in the success of Judas's ministry. We would point out, point out the fruitfulness of his ministry and strongly believe 
that he saw great victories in his spiritual life. In today's text, Jesus will help us to look past the glitz and the glamour of Christian ministry and get to the heart of it. Is the gospel message that we are preaching to others having any effect in our lives? We get happy and filled with joy when spiritual success and powerful moves of God are happening. But is our joy in the right place? Jesus will help us to balance our understanding of it all. And hopefully we walk away enlightened to the truth for rejoicing. But let us pray before going forward. Father in heaven, bless the preaching of the word right now, Lord. In spite of a stammering tongue that preaches the gospel right now. In spite of a weak vessel that comes before the people right now. In spite of our own weaknesses and deficiencies and unworthiness, Lord, may your word penetrate. May it reach our hearts, our minds, our souls, Lord. Bless your word, bless your people, and bless this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, for you note takers, you always got to address the note takers at first, right? The first subject that we will unpack deals with the spiritual victory of the Christian. Let us begin with verse 17. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. We see here the return and the response of the 72. Now, who were the 72? Most people knew the disciples. Most people know who the disciples are, the 12 disciples that Jesus had. But many of us don't know that he had many, many more disciples, many followers. He had to have more than 12 because everywhere he went, the crowds followed him. <laughs> In fact, it got so bad so many times that Jesus had to push away the crowds. But here we have 72 disciples who were sent two by two to do kingdom work. Yeah. Now, British theologian Adam Clark, he speaks on the benefit of having a ministry partner because Jesus sends them out two by two. He says, Christ sent these two by two to teach them the importance of agreement among the ministers of righteousness. That in the mouths of two witnesses, everything might be established and that they might comfort and support each other in their difficult labor. It's harmony, love, sympathy, support, and having people that will walk with you while doing God's work. It is a blessing to have ministry partners. I'm looking around the room at a bunch of ministry partners in here. The Lord has blessed us with many people who walk hand in hand with each other, Sharing the word of God. It is a blessing. Well, Luke 10:1 shows the beginning of their missions trip. It says, after this, if you go with me to Luke chapter 10, to the very beginning. After this, the Lord appointed 
72 others, and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. So we see that Jesus sends them, not alone or just out there, he sends them ahead of himself. Imagine how confident you are when you realize that Jesus is right behind you. <laughs> Do we forget that sometimes? That when we're preaching and sharing the gospel with people, Jesus is right behind us? Spurgeon said this, what a mercy it is when the preacher knows that his master is coming after him. When he can hear the sound of his master's feet behind him. What courage it gives him. He knows that, though it is very little that he can do, he is the thin end of the wedge preparing the way for the one who can do everything. The 72 were to prepare the way for Jesus, like we are to prepare the way for Jesus. Amen? And as we go ahead of Jesus, it's not for us to be in the spotlight. Take the spotlight off of us. We are the ones introducing the main event. We make way for the king's entrance into someone's life. John the Baptist set the greatest example of this when he declared to the world that he must decrease, that Christ might increase. And what prompted Jesus to set up this missions trip? Luke 10, 2 tells us, the harvest is plentiful. But the laborers, the laborers are few. Imagine the pressing on Jesus' heart to find the lost. He looks out and sees a whole field that is ready. And he thinks to himself, I got to send these disciples out. They got to go and do the work. Open up the door. Make the way for Jesus. And so he sends them ahead of him to prepare the way that he might reap a great harvest. He tells them to go therefore and preach the gospel. Bring nothing with you because God will provide. And they obey Jesus' command going forth two by two with nothing in their hands, on their backs, or in their pockets. Now they got more faith than many of us because... A lot of us wouldn't be willing to do that. <laughs> Go forth with nothing in your hands, nothing on your back, nothing in your pockets, trusting God to provide. Most of us do not actually go until God provides. And how does God move while they minister? Verse 17 records their return and their response. The 72 Return with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. The 72 returned with joy. They might have had dirt on their feet. They had a smile on their face. God's work had been done, and God used them to accomplish the work. What an honor and a privilege it is to be used by God. Amen? Amen. Yeah. We don't deserve it unworthy creatures like ourselves. Notice that it says the 72 returned. That means that all that were sent had returned. 
In Luke 10, 3, Jesus says this, go your way, behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. 72 were sent, 72 returned with joy. Spurgeon phrased it, he says, not one of the lambs had been eaten by the wolves. If you've ever done ministry for a certain amount of time, you know how much of a blessing it is for all that were sent to return, safe and sound with joy. They didn't lose their faith. They didn't walk away from Christ. The 72 returned with joy. Praise God. He is faithful to keep his sheep. Amen. But here's a question. What if they didn't see the success? What if they went out to do the work and they found little to no fruit? Mm. Would they have returned with joy? Remember, Jesus told them to go and trust God to provide their needs. What if they went and God didn't provide the way that they thought he should have? Jesus said, go and God will provide. Whatever you think God is supposed to provide, whatever you think God is supposed to provide, if he doesn't give it to you, then you must trust him anyway. You must trust him when you go hungry. You must trust him when doors get slammed in your face. Because they will. You must trust him when you don't have your own place to call home. And when the place that is your home, you don't even want to call home. Maybe none of y'all struggle like that. I know what that's like. <laughs> you must trust him when others reject you, even while you are living obediently. The disciples were filled with joy because their, because their missions trip was filled with outward signs of success. Jesus gave them a mission. Verse 8 and 9, whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you, heal the sick in it, say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. And they did this. They preached, and more than that, text tells us that demons were subject to them in Jesus' name. Yeah. Casting out demons wasn't even on the list of things Jesus told them to do. <laughs> so you see how powerful God moved. They not only did what they were told, but they get a little bit extra credit, don't they? <laughs> God put a little bit extra on top. Now, don't get me wrong. It's a good reason to rejoice whenever you see God moving in this way. You see demons being cast out in Jesus' name. That's a wonderful thing. Success in ministry is a good reason to be happy. We have a lot of reasons to be happy here at Christ alone. God is moving among us. Amen. God is moving through us. Amen. And God is moving in spite of us. Amen. I need a little bit more amens on that one. <laughs> but 
as Pastor Los often reminds us. Being received does not mean success. I'll say that again for you in the back. Being received does not mean success. A lot of money coming in does not mean success. A full parking lot does not mean success. Being able to run a bunch of ministries does not mean success. Saints, we might have a great harvest when we are obeying the Lord, but we also might not see a great harvest. Maybe not right away. And we have to be joyful no matter which way it goes. Habakkuk 3, 17 and 18 gets to the heart of it. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Are spiritual victories worthy enough for us to respond in joy? Yes. We will and we should rejoice when we experience victory in our labors. It's a good reason to rejoice. But there is a greater reason to rejoice. Amen? Which we will soon unpack. But for now, this brings us to our first point today. Point number one, the Christian will rejoice over spiritual victories. Next, Jesus deals with the spiritual confidence of the Christian. Verse 18, and he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. They come back happy. Jesus, we saw God move. Demons were cast out in your name. Jesus looks at them and says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Jesus, what are you talking about? <laughs> what does that have to do with this? This is when we start thinking we're more wise than Jesus. What is Jesus talking about? Right? <laughs> He's not even. The disciples return happy and rejoicing in what God has done. Jesus starts talking about Satan. As always, there are scholars who debate why Jesus said this. There are many that view this as Jesus referring to Satan's prehistoric fall from heaven. There's a complicated belief that uh, Satan was the most beautiful angel in heaven, the choir director, and he was kicked out of heaven at some point. We also know in the book of Job, it talks about Satan having access to heaven. The prophet Isaiah records the fall of the king of Babylon, which many think also refers to Satan. Satan's fall is described in Revelation 12, 
but the exact date of it happening is unclear. Even in the week leading up to his death, Jesus speaks of his crucifixion as the point of Satan being cast out. So yes, Jesus might be referring to Satan being cast out of heaven. But could it be that Jesus was affirming their success in a poetic way? Jesus often speaks in ways that confuse us today whether it be non-literal, parabolic, apocalyptic, figurative language. Some of y'all might be confused at those terms I just used. <laughs> John Corson argues that it could be that Jesus was giving a word of witness. That is, it could be that he was telling his disciples that as they were ministering and as they were sharing, the kingdom of darkness was being beaten back. Light was breaking forth, and Satan was falling down. More than a cliche, the primary meaning of binding Satan is not something we say verbally, but work that we do practically. When we pronounce peace and heal the sick, when we share the gospel, help the hurting, and witness to those who are lost, that is when the enemy is truly bound. Jesus's response to this news is interesting. He adds a detail to their report. He, he mentions something that they were not even aware of. While they were engaged in the mission, Jesus saw Satan fall from heaven, fall from the place of power. Leon Morris says this, the picture here is metaphorical. As the mission had spread, the influence of the enemy had diminished. In that gospel triumph, Satan had suffered a notable defeat. But there is one more way to view it. In mentioning Satan, Jesus is giving a warning to his disciples. If Jesus is referring to Satan's fall, then maybe he is using Satan as an example. You can be on top of the world in one moment and in the next being violently cast down. David Guzik, he says it well. In remembering the fall of Satan, Jesus warns them against pride. After all, if Satan could fall like lightning from his place of high spiritual status and privilege, then so could they. <clears throat> Says that Jesus might be warning them against pride. What is pride exactly? The Oxford Dictionary says a feeling of deep pleasure or satisfaction that is derived from one's own achievements. Pride was at the root of Adam and Eve when they sinned. They thought that they were greater than they were. They got puffed up, forgot that they needed God. They forgot that God alone sits on the throne. Pride is a dangerous and a lethal friend. Our generation would call them, call pride a frenemy. 
a friend that is actually an enemy. Even the world knows this about pride. One of our prophets today, J. Cole, <laughs> he made a song about it, called it Pride is the Devil. In the song, he mentioned slowly realizing that at the root of all his problems is pride. Maybe you can feel the same way. Jesus warns his disciples against the evil schemes of pride because it's easy to become puffed up in yourself in times of success. When things are going well. When you think the spotlight should be on you. Especially in ministry. Doing the work of the Lord. How could this be wrong? It can be wrong if you have the right, wrong heart while you're doing it. You can be doing all the right things with the wrong motives. We can easily forget by whose power and authority that we do the work of God. We, can for, we, we forget that this is all Jesus in here. How did we get here from little old Market Street? We, we preaching at the second service of the day. <laughs> we had to wait for the first church to leave so that we could come in, set up our equipment every Sunday. They messed the board all up, the volumes. God bless y'all if y'all watching this now. But we love them. We're grateful for them. But it was tough. It was tough. Taking the back seat there. And we, we forget that God grew us out of that place and he provided this place for us. We can forget that it is actually by God's power and authority that we do the work of God. But he reminds them, Jesus makes sure to remind them in verse 19. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Take some time, go with me to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Because there's some things that need to be understood when reading these words. Jesus always means what he says, but he doesn't always say what he means. What I mean is this. Jesus always proclaims the truth, but he doesn't always explain the truth. Very often, Jesus speaks his words with pictures that his audience would understand. The disciples knew that serpents and scorpions are lethal to, to humans like a wolf is to a lamb. But the more likely image that they would have had in their head would have came from the pages of the Torah. Are you there with me, Deuteronomy chapter 8? In this chapter... Moses commands Israel to carefully observe the whole commandment of God in order to live and multiply and go in and possess the promised land. These verses even sound similar to what Jesus is telling the 70 as he sent them out. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you through these 40 years in the wilderness 
that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commands or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. That he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Thank goodness that Jesus only sent them out for a few days. Imagine if he would have sent them out 40 years and told them, don't bring nothing with you. God will provide. God provided 40 years in the wilderness. In verses 11 through 16, Moses continues by reminding the Hebrews what God delivered and protected them from. Verse 11, take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you out of the water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Notice that Moses and Jesus speak, both speak of God's people being protected from serpents and scorpions. These disciples knew the Old Testament. They knew what God had protected his people from in the wilderness when he sent them. Notice that both people were instructed on how they were to go and possess the territory that God sent them into. They were to go out and trust in the Lord for all that they had Never forgetting that what? That he was the source of their survival. And that he was the the source of their success. Amen? In verse 19 of our text today, Jesus states that the disciples have the authority to tread on serpents and scorpions. This clearly symbolizes the power that they were given. In a literal sense, Because we see later in the New Testament, at least one disciple of Jesus was bitten by a venomous viper, and he shook it off in Jesus' name. We did see that happen. But also in the figurative sense, Jesus' disciples had power over anything that came against them. Thomas Schreiner. He says, Jesus is merely describing in symbolic terms the impact of the disciples' ministry. The kingdom of God was making inroads on Satan's domain. The disciples were sharing in Jesus' authority over all forms of evil and destruction. Snakes and scorpions do not always refer to demonic powers, but they symbolize instead all kinds of evil. 
Leon Morris seconds him. He says, they had authority over all the power of the enemy. Satan himself could not prevail against them. Their security is emphasized with Jesus' words, nothing shall hurt you. And this is true for us as well. We can be confident that nothing can truly harm us. Amen? Amen. Even death itself. But there's a balance to it. The power and authority are given to us, given to Jesus' disciples. But the source of the power and the authority is Christ. We should never forget that. This means that the Christian can be confident at all times. But the Christian should not be confident in themselves. And we can pray for more confidence, right? We can pray for more heart and courage. Let our heart, our courage, our confidence, let it be in Christ. Christ alone has all the power and authority over all things. That's what we can be confident in, that we are well taken care of. The same way that children have full confidence in their parent to take care of them. Amen? Amen. Amen. Point number two, the Christian will find confidence in their spiritual victories. The last topic that Jesus deals with is found in verse 20. The spiritual assurance of the Christian. Let us look at verse 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Oh, yeah. Now we got some clarity. Now we got some clarity. Felt like Jesus was just going around in circles, didn't he? Just to give this command right here. First, let's deal with the nevertheless do not rejoice. Jesus is not forbidding them from rejoicing over spiritual victories and success. Jesus is not forbidding them from rejoicing over their freshly given spiritual authority and confidence. Jesus is not forbidding them from rejoicing over the evil spirits being subject to them in his name. No, Jesus is not doing this. Jesus is commanding them to rejoice over that which is greater, that which is more important. He is telling them to rejoice over something that is more sure than spiritual success and victories and confidence that we might have. More certain than this. He tells them to rejoice that their names are written in the book of life. You know why he redirects their joy? Because he knows that there will be people who have great spiritual power, yet no claim of God's kingdom. That is why I pointed to Judas, the very beginning of this message. Because he showed lots of signs of power and authority. He was part of this 72. (laughs) He was there. Demons were cast out. Jesus knows that there will be people who have great spiritual victories, yet lose in the end. He knows that success in this life does not always mean that you have God's favor. If anyone knew it best, the man of sorrows, Jesus himself, 
He knows that living in glory now does not always lead to eternal life. Jesus points this out many times throughout his ministry. In Luke 6, 20 through 23, we read when Jesus promised his disciples that uh, those who are going through struggles may not look like it. When he gave the Beatitudes, he says, it lifted, he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, blessed are you who are poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy. What? <laughs> for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. In Matthew 23, 23, Jesus deals with those who were known by everyone to be pious, knowledgeable of God's word, and even known to put the most in the offering plate. He had a word for them, too. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. What about those who display great spiritual power and authority? Are there signs and impressive works of faith enough to make them have a blessed assurance? Jesus answered this question in Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? And do my, many mighty works in your name. Yeah. And then I will declare to them, yeah. I never knew you. Yeah. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Yeah. What does this communicate to those who call themselves followers of Jesus? You may not always have the success and the victories of someone else. You may be poor, you may go hungry, you may weep, cry, your life might look crazy and messed up, people may hate you, exclude you, persecute you, but you can and should still rejoice in God's love for you, amen? Amen. It's a good thing to give great offerings and tithes like God commands. Have you neglected to display justice, mercy, faithfulness in your life? And glory to God that you call Jesus your Lord and Savior. And you might know all the confessions and the creeds. Praise God that you cast out demons and you do many mighty works. Is your name written in heaven? Will God claim you on the day of judgment? 
This is what Jesus wanted his disciples to understand, that spiritual victories, success, power, authority, confidence, all great things. We should pray for these things. But there is something greater than all of these, and that is your name being written in the book of life. In the next few verses, Jesus begins to rejoice. I won't step ahead. I won't go ahead because that's next week's sermon. But Jesus, he didn't rejoice because of the success that they had on their missions trip. He rejoiced that God had opened their eyes to the truth of the gospel. That is what we are supposed to rejoice in. We should be filled with joy, but we must make sure to test the ground that our joy is founded upon. Test the ground. Why are you joyful? Why are you happy? (laughs) And on the flip side of that, why are you sad? Why don't you have joy? We shouldn't have joy in success, signs, or even good works. That should not be the foundation. But as we come to our third and final point, I hope that we get the big picture. Point number three, the Christian's joy must be anchored in their salvation. As we conclude, I will give three crucial reminders. Reminder number one, do not put too much hope in spiritual success. Nowadays, too many people are tricked by the glitz and the glamour of so-called success in ministry and the spiritual realm. We see others, and they're living in victory and all of these things, right? The disciples rejoiced because they experienced success, and Jesus gave them a lesson on it. Would they have still rejoiced if they were rejected and walked away with nothing to show? What if all they could say is, Lord, we were faithful to share your word? And though we see no immediate fruit, we trust you with the harvest. That's not enough for some, is it? We can also fall into the trap of praising God on the sunny days and blaming God on the rainy days. Maybe not even blaming him, but losing joy of what we think, what we consider to be failure. We forget the true victory is remaining steadfast. That long-suffering is winning. That the prize goes to those who endure to the end, not to those who are leading in the first quarter. If your joy is found in the good days of the Christian life and lost on the hard days, then your joy will never be consistent. Your joy will not be on solid ground. Build your joy upon the rock, the solid rock. And when the storms come and the winds blow, you will be rooted on a firm foundation. Reminder number two, do not put too much hope in spiritual power. Again, 
Nowadays, too many people are deceived by so-called spiritual power. <laughs> and we can name a whole bunch of ways that we are deceived by this so-called spiritual power. The disciples rejoiced because they saw God's power working through them. But what if the demons weren't cast out? <laughs> Would they have been okay with just preaching the gospel? People coming to Christ. Here's another question. What if the preaching wasn't hitting so hard? What if here, evangelism produces no converts. What if the church loses attendance and support? What if that person that you've been praying for doesn't come to Christ? What if they drift further away? True Christian joy is found in one's contentment in Christ. Do you still marvel at what Christ has done for you? Or have you forgotten? Have you lost the joy of your salvation? Does his love still amaze you? Are you still humbled by his grace working slowly but surely in your life? Key word on the slowly but surely. If your joy only increases... When God moves in miracles and signs and wonders, I have to tell you, you have a real heart issue. Jesus said, in the evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. True Christian joy increases at the thought of the greatest spiritual power ever witnessed. Three days in the belly of the earth, and on the third day of resurrection. Amen. That's what we rejoice in. Amen. Reminder number three, do not lose sight of what's important, what's most important, which is your eternal destiny. The 70 are nobodies to the world. We don't know all of their names, do we? But we do know something more important. God knows their names. And they were known beforehand by God. Ephesians 1, 3 through 10 reminds us of our blessed assurance. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us 
in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. D.L. Moody said there are three things for the Christian to especially rejoice in. First, in his own salvation. In his own salvation. Second, the salvation of others. And then third, seeing Christians walking in the truth. Saints, Jesus gives us a reason to rejoice. Our names are written in heaven. <laughs> if you can't praise him for that, I don't know what you're going to praise him for. Our names are written in heaven. <laughs> what? Aren't us? Of all people that God could have chosen, us? I pray that we never become numb or forget these truths. I pray that we hold on to this encouragement. I pray that we look to Christ daily. And when we do, I pray that we remember that in Christ, we have a reason to rejoice. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven. Lord, we could go on all day thanking you, praising you, rejoicing in the blessings that you have given us, the love that you have lavished upon us, the fact that you chose us before the foundation of the world, Lord. You loved us before we loved you. You loved us when we were still enemies of you, when we hated you and when we opposed you in every single way. Lord, help us to keep our minds and our hearts focused on what we should be rejoicing on. Help us to not get distracted or to lose our joy over things that are less important. We praise you for the success, the victories, the confidence that you have given us, Lord. But more than anything, we thank you for the assurance of salvation that we have. Our names are written in heaven, Lord. And we rejoice in it. We thank you for it. We praise your name for it. In Jesus' name.